Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Desmond Mead is president of the Florida Rights Restoration Committee, which surprised and inspired the nation with a win few saw coming. A grassroots campaign passed a groundbreaking constitutional amendment with a supermajority of more than 60% of the vote. It restored voting rights to one and a half million people with prior felony convictions who had served their time. Desmond says the key to success was transcending typical divides and mobilizing volunteers, donors, and voters from all backgrounds and beliefs. Time Magazine called him one of the world's most influential people. He's a MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellow, a Ford Foundation Global Fellow, and his organization was nominated for a Nobel Prize. On this episode, we'll talk with Desmond Mead about ideas you can use to create campaigns that transcend divides to achieve great things. As a native Floridian, I have to start by saying, as a fellow native Floridian, thank you for all the work you do. I've been following your work for years, and I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And our listeners are anxious to hear from you. Uh, A lot of folks um, who listen to this podcast are in the work of achieving great things uh, against uphill odds, and which you clearly were able to do and continue to do in Florida. But I wanted to start with your story for folks who might not have heard it. Um, These issues were personal to you when you founded this organization. Let's start with your story. Yeah, Doug, um, (laughs) you're right. You know, this issue is definitely personal to me. You know, I I call myself a returning citizen and and we use that term. There are other terms too as well, like justice impacted people or formerly incarcerated people. Uh, But I'm an individual who had a previous felony conviction, you know, because of my drug addiction. You know, I found my Myself getting arrested multiple times and in and out of jails or prisons. And eventually, you know, in 2005, you know, because of my substance abuse, I found myself actually standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. That was August of 2005. You know, that moment I stood there, I was a broken man. You know, I was at the lowest point in my life. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel for me. And so I waited for this train to come uh, because I was ready to end my life. But thankfully, the train never came. And I ended up crossing the tracks and I walked a few blocks further and I checked myself into a, a drug treatment facility. And after four months of treatment, I was able to graduate and I moved back into a homeless shelter. And while there, I decided to enroll in one of the local colleges. And I did pretty well. I did pretty well and uh, graduated with the highest honors and uh, pursued a, a bachelor's degree in public safety management. And eventually I got accepted into law school. And in May of 2014, I graduated from Florida International University College of Law with a Juris Doctorate degree. And along that journey, you know, I really discovered what it meant to really give back. I, I, I discovered what it meant to serve and to make this world a better place. And that's what I've dedicated my life to ever since. And you had the vision of restoring voting rights to folks in your situation. Tell us about that for folks who don't know the story behind this amazing campaign. Let me tell you, that I mean, when you just look at my story, you know, of course, made some mistakes in the past, able to overcome those mistakes, you know, and, and, and like I said, sought treatment uh, and then went to school and, and, and dedicated my life to giving back and even graduating uh, law school. Right. But in spite of all of that I, that I was able to over, uh, overcome or accomplish. Right. 
because I lived in the state of Florida, I still could not vote. My rights were not restored. Uh, I was one of, at the time, 1.68 million Floridians who had served their time, right, but faced a lifetime bar from ever voting, right? And so, you know, just my story alone was enough to like open my eyes. But what really drove me was the story of other people, like a veteran named Howie who served our country and, and, and fought in wars for our country and came home with, you know, disabilities and, you know, found it hard to provide for herself and wrote a bad check. For 30 years, this man could not even vote. He couldn't get his rights restored. This is the guy that put his life on the line for our country, but because he lived in the state of Florida and he made one mistake, the state of Florida said you would never be able to vote again, that you would not be able to experience what it felt like to be a full citizen. And so stories like how we, you know, was, I mean, it was all, no matter where I went in the state of Florida, we were running into people like that. And at the end of the day, you know, I thought about it, you know, when you talk, when you think about voting, there's no other greater indicator of citizenship than being able to vote, right? And, and, and when you're stripped of the right to vote, you're stripped of your citizenship, right? And so because that is so important, I really felt that the, the the decision or who gets to vote or who don't get to vote should never, ever be left in the hands of politicians. And in the state of Florida, it was four politicians that made that decision, right? And I felt that that left too much room for partisan politics to play a role in whether or not an individual or American citizen is able to participate in an election. And so I came up with the idea of, of taking it out of the hands of politicians and putting it in the hands of people. Let the people of Florida decide whether or not a person like me deserves to participate in our democracy. And it was considered a real uphill battle, right? Folks did not see this. That's right. And part of the secret of success, or maybe the heart of it, was bringing together folks of all kinds and through the political lens, liberal, conservative, moderates. How how did you do that? That that you know, Doug, that was the heart of it. You know, and, and you hit it on the head. Some people might find this hard to believe, right? But voting is not as political as people make it out to be. You know, voting is, and I discovered this when I voted for the first time. My first presidential election was in 2020, let me tell you. And in that process, what I discovered was voting was more about an affirmation of a person's place within a society than a political party or the color of a person's skin. I wasn't voting as a black person or a white person or Democrat or Republican. No, I was participating in a very sacred act that affirmed my humanity and my place within this society, right, as a, as a citizen of this country. And so that, for me, is, is very critical for people to understand. And once you understand that, right, because when you looked at why the state of Florida was not, uh, all these politicians were not allowing people who made mistakes to vote, it was purely political. It had nothing to do with criminal justice. It had nothing to do with public safety. It had nothing to do with common sense, right? It was purely political. Because at the end of the day, if a person is an American citizen, they should have a say, especially they pay taxes to as well, they should have a say on how their community is ran. And as far as individuals making mistakes, let me tell you something. We have loan forgiveness. We have bankruptcy court. No, there's all these mechanisms to give people a second chance, right? To forgive past transgressions. Why are we stopping when it comes to allowing a citizen to vote? And so we seeing that it was purely political. We knew that we had to approach this in a um, non-political way. You know, folks, you was telling me that, hey, Desmond, that was an amazing bipartisan campaign you ran. And I would tell them, no, it wasn't. It was not a bipartisan campaign. And they were like, oh, we met uh, 
nonpartisan campaign. And I would say, no, it's not that either. It was an organic grassroots movement that welcomed and enjoyed bipartisan support. The difference is we did not lead with the politics. We led with people, right? And there's so many things in our society, in this country, that's really about humanity and really about people and not about politics. But once politics get involved, then man, you just get all kinds of just disjointness and, and, and you see this hatred and fear and all of this stuff that divide us as a country because we're politicizing things that should be a, a, along the lines of humanity, that should be more about uh, human beings caring for each other. So putting people in the picture, sort of leading with the human element, the human story. And what are you not doing then? Not using political buzzwords? What are, what are you not doing when you're keeping people at the forefront? Well, there's a couple of things. Not only are we not using political buzzwords, but we're not excluding people. You see, mm. sometimes we get caught up in excluding people and we only highlight, you know, like I give you a great example. You know, one of the big things when I when I was discovering about felon disenfranchisement, I mean, I kept hearing, you know, one out of four African-American men in the state of Florida cannot vote because of felony conviction. I kept hearing it over and over and over again. And it started making me believe that only black people couldn't vote in Florida. Right. Or, or, or and, and then the reality was, was that African-Americans only made up a third of the people who could not vote. Now, I don't ignore the fact that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by felon disenfranchisement, but that in itself does not exclude the two-thirds of white people, people that look more like you, right, than like me, who could not vote. And so was this an effort to give black people the right to vote, or was this an effort to give people with previous felony convictions the right to vote? And it was the latter. And because of that, it allowed us to touch it, because, listen, I told people, when I was arrested, right, when, when I appeared before a judge, nobody asked me if I was Democrat or Republican, right? When I got hooked on drugs or alcohol or whatever, now the drugs and alcohol didn't distinguish between whether or not I was a Democrat or a Republican. What I know is that people from all walks of life make mistakes. People from all walks of life suffer from substance abuse issues. People from all walks of life deserve to have a say in our democracy. If we're talking about fighting for democracy, that means that we can't only just fight for people that vote like us or look like us, mm. right? We have to fight for people who disagree with us, who may not look like us, may not have the same religious beliefs, but we have to fight for them just as hard as we fight for ourselves. Because the minute we stop doing that, then we're not champions of democracy, right? We're champions of tribalism. And this brings up a lot of issues, and I might use the word tensions for people, right? Like, because society is so divided and politics is so fraught, to have a truly inclusive sort of vision like that feels can be tough for people to embrace, right? It's more like there's sort of this sense like I got to vanquish the other side. The politics make it tough. But the reality is, is that the feeling or the approach that I'm talking about is inherent in each and every one of us. It's already there, right? I'm not talking about some new concept. You know, we see it materialize in, in, in moments of crisis, whether it's the aftermath of a hurricane or a tornado, whether it's it's the collapse of the condo, condominium in Surfside. What we see is that whenever there's a natural disaster, people come together irrespective of their political differences, their racial differences, all of that. It does, is thrown out of the window and we connect with each other along the lines 
of humanity, right? You know, when you're when you're driving or someone is driving on, on, on a highway and they see an accident ahead and they stop, right, and get out their car because they want to go help. When they when they approach that injured person, Doug, I promise you, their first question is not going to be, "Did you vote for Donald Trump?" It's not going to be, "What's your immigration status?" It's not going to be, "What's your right. sexual identity or how much money you make," right? When you run up on this person, the first thing is going to come out your mouth is, are you okay or how can I help? And it's in those moments that society, that this country is beautiful. We come to each other's aid, right? And listen, all of that other stuff that separates us is just fades away. And so I know that this is something that is real. You know, firefighter, your house is on fire. Firefighter pulls up to your house. You're going to check there, make sure that the immigration status is right or, or that they're in the right political party. No, you want them to put the fire out, right? That's what you want. And so I think that our approach, the approach that I'm talking about, is already inherently in us. It's just clouded by this political back and forth that politicians use to keep us divided as a country. Mm-hmm. Right? As long as they can keep us divided, then they're not held accountable to what we want. I was inspired to reach out to you when I saw the article in The Nation, which had a great headline from Desmond Mead, why love is the most powerful word in the universe. And our listeners would love to hear that. Why is love the most powerful word in the universe? Well, when you look at the Amendment 4 campaign, love did what all of the experts thought couldn't be done. Right? When you talk about uh, engaging in a very controversial subject, such as letting people with previous felony convictions be able to vote, doing it in a controversial state, a very pivotal state at the time, right, where we know that, you know, whoever gets to the White House, you know, Florida is a key state. And we did it during a very divisive uh, political climate. And so all of those elements speak that, hey, you're not even getting this thing on the ballot, much less winning, right? Especially when you are, we're in a state where you need a super majority to pass a constitutional amendment. Not just a majority, but a super majority, 60%. And we did it with 65%. And so I, I, I tell folks that, you know, we did this, right? Not through fear, not through hate. We actually did it through love. And we showed the world that love can, in fact, win the day. Love can make the impossible possible. I'm hearing the combination. You hear me piecing together. Hmm, how does this work, right? Keeping people in the picture, that sort of helping people see the shared humanity, which, again, is inherent. That's not it sounds very natural, organic, as you said, but it's also kind of strategic, right? Everyone can see themselves in this. It is. It, it is very, very strategic, but I also believe it's natural. And so how do we get back to that? You know, how do we get back to a uh, state? Because let me tell you, I, I find it hard to believe that the majority of people that's living in this country wants to want to wake up every morning being fearful of their neighbor or hating their neighbor. I find that hard to believe. Man. I, I find it hard to believe that no one wants anyone to smile at them and say hello and treat them uh, humanely. I find that extremely hard to believe. You know, I tell folks, we don't have to live the way we're living now. That We could do much better as a country. We could do much better as a community. We could have our differences. I mean, listen, I've been married over 10 years now. And let me tell you, my wife, we disagree on a lot of things. I mean, listen, you know, she's a Philadelphia Eagle fan. I had to I had to give up being a Dallas Cowboy fan and a Miami <laughs> Dolphin fan to become a, a Philadelphia Eagle fan. But the thing is, is that, guess what? In spite of our differences, 
And we still find ways to love each other and treat each other with respect. You know, and we see it. You know, we've seen families where half of the house is Alabama, the other half is Auburn, <laughs> half is Michigan, the other half is Ohio State. You know, right. But guess what? They still live together. They still love each other and they still function. Yeah. Growing up in Tallahassee with the Seminoles and it was all between the Seminoles and the Gators. That was like yes. that was the toughest divide overcome. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. Well, our listeners love to learn about how to, you know, effective tools and techniques for campaigns. And I wanted to start with language, which you mentioned earlier, uh, using the term returning citizen. So how are we talking about people whose lives are being voted and rights are being voted on here? Um, Tell us about your thinking there. What's the importance of words around this particular issue? What was your thinking behind returning citizen? Extremely important. Let me tell you two quick stories. Came up with the word returning citizen because Florida State, which have one of the top criminology doctoral programs, in the world actually did research on this. And, and the research found that when you call someone a felon or an ex-con, right, you actually increase the likelihood of them recidivating, right? Mm. And it kind of makes sense because we've we've heard the adage that if you call a child stupid, if you keep calling the child stupid, they're going to grow up thinking that they're what? That they're stupid, right? And so we we that's how we, we came up with the word returning citizen to try to bring some dignity and some humanity back to the individual. Uh, folks use justice impacted people. So they're the people first campaign going across the country that's really uh, trying to get people to see the humanity in a person first because guess what? That person that's incarcerated is someone's son, daughter, father, mother. They're a human being first, right? They made a mistake. They committed a crime, right? But they're still a human being first, right? That's story number one. Story number two is this. We've seen uh, historically what words can do. Right. One of the things that I, I, I speak on, it's a very touchy subject, but it was about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What the United States did was engage in the proper prior to bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They engaged in a very massive uh, a propaganda campaign that depicted the Japanese people as as evil and dangerous individuals. I mean, they exaggerated characters of them. I mean, they brought fangs, slanted their eyes, exaggerated everything, right? And, and created this hysteria about the Japanese people. And what they were able to do was two things. Number one, they were able to dehumanize the Japanese people. And number two, they were able to desensitize us as to their humanity. So when the United States dropped the bomb and killed many innocent women, children, and men, rather than they be more outraged, there was actually a celebration, right? Because we did not see them as people. And so when you use terms like convict and felon, right, you dehumanize. I'm going to show you the power of a word. You could take an immigrant and all you had to do is put one word in front of immigrant. Just put it legal there. That's it. And that person was immediately dehumanized and you were immediately desensitized as to their plight. And so words are extremely powerful and, and words can be be used to allow atrocities. I mean, when you're talking about incarcerating kids before they're even teenagers, when you talk about putting a human being in conditions that you wouldn't even put an animal in, right? When you talk about like solitary confinement, right? We, we allow these policies to exist in this country because we did not see the individuals that were incarcerated as human beings. We looked at them much differently than if they were our mother or our father or our son or our daughter, right? It's a much different context there. And so how do we get people to see the humanity in each, in each other first? And that would help drive sensible policies in 
every area. Yeah, part of keeping people in the picture and at the forefront and careful of how you label them to make sure you're not dehumanizing or deficit framing the term often used, sort of putting people forward as the mistake that needs to be corrected almost. Do you have other examples of words that you hear out there and talking about issues that um, people need to be careful about or think twice about? You know, I... <laughs> I think that, you know, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> some of the words that we use uh, are so often, right, we, 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 it kind of promotes the tribalism piece, right? Um, if, if I am like in, in our effort to restore voting rights to people with previous felony convictions, right, I didn't frame it as a progressive issue. I didn't frame it as a conservative issue. Yeah. It was a human issue. And sometimes we tend to put want to put a tag or title next to what we're doing. And, and, and what we effectively have done is limit who we can talk to or who can engage in us, who can engage with us. Right. The thing about it is, is that most of the issues that we're dealing with are issues that circle around how we treat each other as human beings. Right. And, and, and more of a humanist approach. And so I think that we we kind of um, I don't want to say devalue, but I think that we we weaken our efforts when we put labels on these things. And it, it should be just an effort. This is just a grassroots effort to do this, to, the, to do that, because this is the right thing, right? Why do I have to say it's the progressive thing? It's the conservative thing, right? Those are words that I think just uh, end up just dividing us more as a country. And you mentioned an interesting example earlier about the use of the term disproportionate, the factual matter that this issue, for example, disproportionately affected black people in Florida, which is a factual statement. Mm -hmm. But to you, that also obscured the larger reality kind of got in the way a bit. It, it definitely did. And and, and, and what we've seen, uh, especially in, uh, I would say, in, in 2020, uh, what we've seen is that, you know, there were a, a huge portion of our society that felt ignored. Right. And someone came along to speak to those individuals because we weren't speaking to them and we weren't speaking about them unless we were talking down to them. Right. And so I think that when we become more inclusive in our conversations, we're able to engage people in me in meaningful ways. Right. And find out that we actually have more in common than we do that divides us. Right. And I think that we can build around the things that we have in common. I think those values, you know, like, for instance, in Amendment 4, Florida is a very hard state to to run a campaign in statewide because it's sometimes some folks say it's three states in one. And you have to adjust your messaging depending on what part of the state you're in. Right. We didn't do that. We kept our message pure and simple. Right. And, and we started our conversation with one question. Is there anyone who you love who's ever made a mistake? That's it. Nice. And, 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 and that message resonated with folks, whether it was in South Florida, Central Florida, or North Florida. It did not matter because everyone had someone who they cared about who made a mistake or they themselves have made a mistake, right? And understand power of forgiveness, redemption, and restoration, right? And so I think in a lot of things that we do, if we could just, just touch on the values, right? Some very basic core values that we can all agree on, we could accomplish much more. Absolutely. It's reminded me of the marriage equality movement, which I worked on over the years. And love was the big idea when yep. we started with a, a similarly simple question. If marriage is, is important to you, why? 
why do you why do you want to get married? And it started out with love and family and all the basic human things. Um, Once again, the power which, of love. <laughs> yeah, it's, the power yeah. of love. Well, uh, back to this article from the Nation. There was an intriguing quote, um, provocative one, I think, for people in times like these, quote, being able to love those who despise us gives us power. At a time when this, right, then people feel divided. It's like you have to conquer those bad people over there. Loving those who despise us could be a mind-blowing idea. Say more about the power of loving those who despise us. You know, uh, I remember a long time ago, and I've heard it so many times, about, you know, when you give people space in your head, right? Yeah, right. When you're, when you're uh, mad at someone or you're hating someone and, and they occupy that space in your head, mm. right, that takes away from you. That really does. Um, And I think that, you know, I'm a person of faith. And what I do know is that there's this uh, um, chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's called a love chapter. And it talks about how you could do a lot of impressive things, but it's not really that impressive if you don't know how to love someone who might piss you off or irritate you or whatever. If you don't, if you don't know how to love, matter of fact, let me tell you, uh, and Jesus talked about that, right? That You know, if you don't go and visit the sick, if you don't go to the prisons, if you can't, you know, love that person that's homeless or or that person that's addicted to drugs, then how could you say you love me? You know, the love that you profess for me is is empty and hollow, right? It sounds as tinkling blasts or, or sounding cymbals or however they, they, they phrase that, but it sounds like a bunch of noise, right? If you want the harmony, then you have to be able to love. And when you do that, right, you 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 get rid of the, that negative energy that does nothing but wear you down. Like I tell you, it takes less muscle to smile than it does to look upset, right? I mean, your health, the stress, right, is, I mean, there's so many, I mean, uh, uh, um, physical, spiritual ways that you actually become more powerful when you learn to love. And here's the beautiful thing. My mission is how do we get people to love who we despise the most. And, and and I think that that is the kind of love that Jesus talks about. Because see, it's easy to say you love someone that confers a benefit to you, make you feel good. Oh yeah, I love you. Yeah, you just gave me a million dollars. I love you. No, that's not, that's, the, that's not the real love. Real love is when someone tries to hurt you, but you're still able to see their humanity. You're still able to have empathy or compassion for them, in spite of the fact that they may disagree with you or they may hate you. Right. You're still able to recognize that they're still a child of God. Right. They're still someone's mother, someone's father. Right. How can I treat them with respect and love their humanity? And I think when you do that, you elevate yourself above the discourse. Uh, you know, you, you elevate yourself above the fray and, and you're at a different plateau and allows you to live a much more peaceful life. Mm. And I it transforms that. people because hate. You no, know, Martin Luther King says no. Hate can't drive out hate. Fear can't drive out fear. Right? Mm. But the love. Oh my God! The light. Light can can drive out the darkness. Love can drive out those things. Absolutely. I was raised with First uh, Corinthians as well, and the idea oh, of loving, wow. your, loving your enemy. I was like, what? But it's interesting how the social science talks about. Some of this, the polarization in society is driven by people's fear of others and what we think they think of us. So the sort of being having anger and fear and hate towards somebody um, is a two two way street. But if you let it go, 
they may not see you as a threat. And thus their level of anxiety and anger goes down and that sort of creating the conditions. Um, but somebody has to go first, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> somebody has to take that first step, you know, and going back to the Bible, I think that's one of the things that Jesus did. He took that first step. Right. And, and here's the thing, you know, because when you think about it, that, that verse says, for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that he made that first step and sacrificed what was dearest to him for people who didn't give a damn about him, for people who hated him, for people who despised him, for people who uh, disrespected him. He still went ahead and did that for us. Right. We were, were we worthy of it? No, we weren't worthy of it. But guess what? Someone loved us enough. Right. To give up their only son. Right. Come on. What greater act of love is there? Right. And as especially a country that's supposed to be a country of faith. You know, we got in God. We trust on our, on, on our currency. Right. For people who profess faith. If you can't understand that piece, then everything else that you've done is is just a facade. Mm. Everything else that you do is a, is a facade. If you cannot grasp that concept of love. Right. If we like, for instance, I mean, one of the things that 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 I I tell folks is especially people of faith. When I was uh, at the beginning of the campaign and I always used to I would go to conservative folks and I would say, hey, do you believe in second chances? And it was like, well, whatever, you know, I would remind them of the story of Christ when he was on the cross and the criminals were right next to him and the criminals Mm -hmm. asked to be saved. And and when I tell them that Jesus didn't say you had to wait five or seven years. Jesus didn't say you had to go through a probationary period, right? Right. What Jesus said was, this day you shall enter into paradise. Right. That's what he said. And and, and that is the, the, the foundation of our faith, right? The concept of forgiveness, redemption, and restoration, right? And it was instantaneous. Grace was instantaneous. And so we know that 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 we as as human beings, if we want to be forgiven, then we've got to be willing to forgive others. You know, we said it. You I, I promise you, how many times have you said the prayer, Doug? You know, the, uh, um, our father, which art in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name. There's one contractual element in that in that in that prayer. A lot of people don't realize it. It's one contractual element. You give him praises at the beginning, but then you get to this point where you say, forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us or forgive us for our debts as we forgive our debtors. And basically it's a contract. It's saying, God, I want you to forgive me, but only if I'm willing to forgive other people. As human beings, we want to be forgiven. We want to be given second chances. And if that's the case, then we ought to be willing to give others a second chance. And if we're not, then we need to, I think, take a step back and reevaluate what our, you know, what our faith is. Do we even have? Are we really a person of faith? And to your earlier point, it's um, you were saying sort of the love and the capacity to love and see the humanity others is a natural, organic human thing, which may or may not be rooted in religion. Right? Um, I hear. You're telling us your story similar to mine of growing up in a a community of faith, Uh, but it's something everyone could tap into. They don't have to have been raised religious. Well, of course, you know, listen, when we think about even our, our democracy now, right, what we do know is that like we as individuals have inherent, we have all the power, right? But what we've done was that we gave up some of that power in order for us to live collectively because we figured out that man it's much better when we can live together 
right? Rather than be by ourselves, right? There, there, there's greater protection. There's a greater opportunity for growth. There's a greater opportunity for comfort, right? And so it's a, just a natural instinct that we have mm-hmm. to be in a group, to be a part of something bigger than us, right? To be able to care about something beyond us, right? That's, that's just a natural instinct that we have, Right. And we acquiesced our power. And then what we did was with the power that we acquiesced, we created a government and we elected certain people to represent our, our best interests. And that's it. We're going down another road with that one because, you know, we have people that we're electing that's not representing our best interests. Right. And, 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 and like I said, that's a different story. But at the end of the day, you no, know, we don't want to be by ourselves. We don't. No one wants to be by themselves. Right. We want to be a part of something bigger than us. We want to believe in something greater than us. Right. Whether it's a higher power or whatever. Right. And so that's all there, too. And it doesn't have to be. You don't have to be religious to 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 have those instincts. It's already inherent in each and every one of the religious piece just helps us refine those instincts and, 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 and put stories to it. So sort of recap what I've heard over the past 30 minutes, we've got the putting people in the picture, keeping the shared humanity front and center, tapping into those universal human aspirations might be a way to talk about for connection to others, for compassion. To your point, there's sort of built in to our humanity anyway. And that's good for us as individuals. And the science is showing that it is. Compassion, kindness, forgiveness toward others is actually good for us psychologically. And and also- and, 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 and uh, physically as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mind and body work together. And also, interestingly, for listeners of this podcast, it can also be kind of strategic, right? Because you're expanding your reach. You're expanding the appeal, if you will, of your issue, of your cause, of your campaign to many, many more people who can see these aspirations reflected. Does that sound like, did I get that right? Yeah, you got it right. (laughs) You got it right. Well, that's really helpful. I think very inspiring, um, provocative, thoughtful food for thought for our listeners. So what's part one parting word of inspiration for you for folks who are listening like, wow, I I need to do something different here. Um, but for those looking to achieve an uphill battle like you have and continue to do, what's one parting word of advice or inspiration? I would tell them to uh, buy my book, right? <laughs> Let my people vote. You know, and, I, and I'm going to tell you why I say that, right? Because you know, I tell folks, listen, I'm just an ordinary guy that, you know, listen, I was a guy that was standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on the train to come so I could jump in front of it. Today, I'm a coffee genius fellow, was one of the, top, one of the 100 most influential people in the world from Time Magazine. My organization is now nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, Right. And I have a law degree and I'm leading this amazing uh, um, organization for the Rights Restoration Coalition. Right. Just Desmond. And 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 I remember when I when I went to the gala for Time 100 and I was sitting at the table with some executives from Time magazine and I told them that they they dropped the ball big time. Right. Because on that issue of Time 100, they had uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson on the cover. And I told them they should have had me on the cover. Right. And not because I was conceited. I'm not conceited. But what I told them was was that their readers needed to know 
that you don't have to be a movie star. You don't have to be an actor. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be a billionaire. You don't have to be a politician to have an impact in your community, in your state, in the country, or even the world. Right. That if that guy that's on the cover, Desmond Mead, can go from being addicted to crack cocaine and in and out of jail and prisons to being one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Then what does that say about me? What does that say about you? Right. And and, and so that my pardon word is that each and every one of your listeners have within them what it takes to do great things. Right. To be one of the 100 most influential in the world and all kinds of accolades that you have the ability to impact the lives of not just your family members or friends, but your community and your and people in your state and your country and even the world, right? But you have to want to do it, and you and you have to be able to number one be powered by love, but always just keep people first, right? And do it not for your self gratification, but do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because it's the natural thing to do. That we fight for each other. Let's not wait for natural disasters to happen before we love our neighbor. Let's love our neighbor in spite of, right? That we don't wait for a hurricane to come through, a tornado. No, we're going to love our neighbor every single day in spite of our differences. And we do that, we could change just the whole trajectory of this country. We can change the whole trajectory of your state and your community. Powerful words indeed. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your wisdom today. No, thank you so much for having me again.